And welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth. Uh, I'm Patrick Emerson. Jeff, how are you doing? Wow. That was lightning. Well, lightning. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying out new intros. All right. I know. Well, we, we talked... Choose, choose your own intro. We talked about introducing ourselves. Yeah. But, you know, it occurs to me... So I tried a third way. Uh, you did try a third way. It occurs to me that introducing myself feels weird. Uh, so... you rather introduce me? I kind of would rather introduce you. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, we'll, 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 we'll keep working we'll, on this, We'll crack folks. that nut, yeah. <laughs> if you have opinions, be sure to let us know for the mailbag feature. That will uh, be built, a scintillating uh, podcast. Yeah, I don't think we're talking about the weather as much anymore because we're now in the X-Ray FM studio for the third time in a row. It's so nice. It is so nice but here. It, but it is true that uh, uh, one of the main anchors of our patter, such as it is, is uh, harder for us to remember to talk about. That's because we were sitting in your living room with a big picture window yeah. looking outside. If we did that right now, we'd see a beautiful, bright, sunny day in Portland, Oregon. We would indeed. It's uh, uh, the spring, cherry spring blossoms time is here. are in bloom. The tulips are out. It's a lovely time of year. The birds are tweeting. Uh, it's the time of year you start to think about lighter beers. That's a spectacular segue. Are you? You. I'm getting good, kind of kind getting, of like a professional kind of good because I haven't really finished the intros, but uh, we will be talking about lighter beers today. Uh, before I should probably finish the intros, which is to say that you are uh, an accomplished and prolific author. You have written many things, including uh, the Beer Bible, yes, uh, Secrets of Master Brewers, yes, and as we just talked about in the last pod, the Widmer Way. Thank you very much. You're off to New York City for that, by the way, right? Yeah, I am. Uh, I will be there uh, in the for, for the first week of May, which actually is I might already be back by the time this uh, broadcast. <laughs> well, that's so, okay. Yeah, but that's pretty pretty darn impressive. I'm I'm excited. I should write something that gets me invited to New York City. I'm actually really looking forward to that. I'm doing a ton of different kinds of media, and in fact, this was a a, a big a big feather in my cap. I as uh, longtime listeners will know, I gave a reading at Powell's. Yes, which is on the marquee, which is arguably the biggest and most famous bookstore in America. Its rival is the Strand in New York City, right? Where I will be speaking. Uh, so when I'm you in New can York. make that. You can judge what is the biggest, best bookstore in the United States. I've already. You'll let us know. I've, I've made the judgment. Okay. That's no, <laughs> I'm from. I, <laughs> You're a homer. I, my, my 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 love of the city is. Uh, pretty well established though yeah anyway but it'll be cool we're going to taste some beers there which is something we couldn't do at, at Powell's and uh, why not uh, Powell's I, don't allow it they don't allow it nope no, really no, no beer there oh and you're still the best bookstore in your opinion uh, well I think it's because they don't want to spray in beer all over their books but uh, yeah, they don't care on. about that in New York come on yeah, well it's because <laughs> they have so many books you can't avoid spraying books yeah, yeah that's it yeah, there you are uh, you uh, blog at Beervana and you tweet at at Beervana. and you are an accomplished economist um, well, I'm an economist. Not well. You use the word accomplished <laughs> for me, so I'm throwing it right back in your face. Okay. Not actually famous for your beeronomics uh, in the in the scholarly world. You're a labor economic, yeah, labor economist. Yeah, development economist. No, sorry, development. Yes, First, development. labor is yes, also labor economist. Sorry, development. Uh, what's interesting though, just because we're talking about it and it has nothing to do with beer, is that if I were asking exactly the same questions in high income countries, I'd be a labor economist. But asking labor questions in low-income countries makes me a development economist. That's, that so that strikes me as it. a little. Uh, there you have it. A little weird. It's yeah, a little I, oxidentalism right there. I it think. used to really bother my my great friend and co-author, who's from Brazil, who was really annoyed. <laughs> was was Kaushik your other your your mentor? Was he bothered by it? No, I don't think so. Uh, an Indian. He's not bothered too, by too much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, yes. let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, wait a minute, what are we doing here? <laughs> this is a beautiful, it's a beautiful studio. We got all this nice audio. Maybe we should True. do something with it. Well, we we wandered off track, which is you know that's that's our brand, so it's all right. All right, so uh, because we talked uh, about your book, The Widmer Way, last week, uh, this week we're going to talk about uh, uh, we're going to we're going to go back a few decades uh, to the early years of craft brewing and talk about. Uh, the strange and crazy time before IPAs. Yeah. They existed somehow. <laughs> it was a strange time. Listen, At, children, uh, <laughs> there, there was, was a time. A time. Uh, it was a strange time as different breweries came online with different kinds of beer. Uh, Jim uh, Coke? Cook. Cook. I always get that wrong. Uh, had launched his brewery with an amber lager, uh, that being uh, Boston Brewing, Sam Adams. Yep. Uh, Ken Grossman, a pale ale, that being Sierra Nevada. Yep. Here in the Northwest, breweries were trying different things. Deschutes uh, had a porter. Full Sail and Portland Brewing had ambers. 
but by far the most popular beer for a decade beginning in about 1987 was American Hefeweizen. Nearly every brewery made one, and several breweries were competing to corner the market. It was a different hazy for a different day. We're going to talk about that era, how it started, and why it waned. That's a really nice script. So Thank you. You are a writer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to step best. up my whole game here. I think that's one of your best. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was all extemporaneous from me, by the way. But first, before we do that, let's talk about some news. Amazon, the online retailer, is seeking an alcohol industry lobbyist. Uh, so with its purchase of Whole Foods, Amazon has made a push into groceries, and it's currently possible to buy uh, beer on their uh, Prime Now site. And right. so this looks like a further uh, effort to make online beer and alcohol sales uh, better. So Amazon is making a big play to get into the beer space. Uh, I see. You can you 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 can mail order beer and wine currently correct you can and and you know you can on beer what not not beer now prime prime now yeah uh you can order beer there too they don't have a very but that's big basically selection. local delivery isn't it i think it is local delivery yeah. and i think that's what they've set up there with their their whole foods their uh, they have on you know on on site uh delivery and they're going to try to expand that i think and probably if they have an alcohol consultant uh, lobbyist they're trying to figure out how to change laws so that uh, they can interstate yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get 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 bigger and better. So right. there you go. All right. If there weren't enough UPS trucks in your neighborhood already. <laughs> I'll never have to leave my house soon. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, the next item is a group of 20 investors headed by Major League Baseball star Adrian Gonzalez uh, has put 2.5, I was thinking, uh, do I know this person? Has put $2.5 million into a startup beer brand called Calidad. It has a label similar to Pacifico, a Mexican-style lager, and the company is targeting Southern California as its major market. First, Adrian Gonzalez, uh, you're a kind of a baseball guy. I am kind of a baseball guy, but he's a Southern California guy. He he played for the Angels or the Dodgers or somebody like that. Oh. He, I did click through. He's a he is a big deal. Is he, he, is like, is he retired or is he still uh, playing? I think he's like right at the end of his career, and maybe like. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. So he wants to create a domestic. Everybody who is in Southern California is hating us right now, by the way. This is like, who's that Damian Lillard guy? I've heard he's a somebody. Uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I used to follow baseball closely, but now I just sort of. I, I, I assume. things going on. I assume he's in the National League, and I don't. I'm. I'm hey, now. I'm, I'm NL blind. Hey, now. You might as well not exist. Hey, now. NL. So this is a domestic Mexican lager, basically, right? He yeah. Wants to, wants to create a Southern California brewery that's making uh, good Mexican lager. He's got a lot of money to put into it. And, and of course, giant Latino population in Southern California. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And he is, uh, he was born in the United States, but raised in Tijuana. So it's kind of a, a passion project for him. To, so he's a Mexican American himself. Yeah. Ah. Sort of. I mean, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, yeah, exactly. He's a Mexican American, not Mexican. He's not an immigrant. Right. Okay. And the last one we have the race to develop, uh, the next mosaic or Simcoe hop is heating up, uh, we have actually every every year. It's hard for me to even keep up. There's new hops all all the time. Yeah, and so we're going to do a little remedial uh, reporting here. Over <laughs> the past few months, we've seen the introduction of Lotus by Hopsteiner and Idaho Gem by Gooding Farms in Idaho. Okay. Two hops I've not seen in any beers yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Lotus is described as quote waves of orange and vanilla followed by notes of candied grape and tropical fruit aromas, which I think may be a little bit more florid than actually <laughs> the tongue can taste but that's fine and the tasting notes for idaho gem are bright and forward impressions of fruit candy think juicy fruit or jolly rancher Ooh, i'd rather not so i know right <laughs> supported by citric grapefruit as opposed to non-citric grapefruit i don't know that's probably the first one the writer for the first one was more accomplished than the writer for the second one we, well certainly knew probably a little bit more about hops and <laughs> going to beer. yeah uh, citric grapefruit is interesting because it's one of the citrusy fruits is you're going to get yeah, you, you can't really have grapefruit without citric. But the, really, the upshot here is that they are both, uh, you know, perfect hops. It sounds like they're designed these uh, hops designed to go yeah. in very juicy IPAs. So, so they should be popular. So this is kind of um, a little bit tangential, but I was listening to a very fascinating competing podcast. Not really competing, but the Freakonomics podcast was doing something about bananas. Oh yeah, they're a big competitor. They're looking over their shoulder. Exactly. At us, man. Yeah. Watch out. I'm going to steal some <laughs> content right now. They're talking about bananas and they're talking about the big banana blight that's coming and might 
wipe out the current bananas we eat. I've been hearing about that for at least a decade. Yeah, but that's neither here nor there. The question is that this is probably just let's talk bananas. Traditional plant breeding they're using to select the traits they want, and then they breed for those traits, right? That is totally true, and I think we need to have Jason Peralt on the podcast, who is uh, one of the main. Uh, he's he's actually. Uh, the guy who developed Mosaic, right? And he has a big program, and I've I've interviewed him before, and it is fascinating. It's well, all bre- it's all breeding. It's not um, genetic manipulation. Right. So that's my that's my point, which is, but now you can actually modify the genes themselves by using these CRISPR techniques and stuff. That I'm I'm acting all smart because I listen to a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but it's pop. But this was one we of the, all, we, this this is, everybody throws CRISP ar- CRISPR around. CRISPR like around, we know what like, that yeah, means. We know CRISPR. Uh, <laughs> But that was the debate. That's the debate in the banana community right now. It's like, do you go with a genetically modified banana, which the market might not support because people don't like it? Or do you do traditional plant breeding techniques, which will result in a different banana, fungus resistant banana, but it will be different than the one you've got? Or do you just get the one you've got and modify its genes? So I'm wondering if there's a similar debate in hops or if at some point people might start monkeying with the genes. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody monkeying with the genes, and it's kind of surprising because it's, the process of coming up with a, one of these hops, like uh, the, he, he, they just came out with Sabro most recently, and that's when I interviewed him, it it, 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 it's take, it takes a decade, yeah. and it's just crazy intensive. Yeah. Uh, the, the amount of money they invest in, in coming up with one hop is mind-boggling. Oh, so That's sure. interesting, because I was about to say, I bet the market just doesn't support the cost it would take to actually do the, gene, the genetic modifications, but perhaps not. Well, CRISPR is supposed to be super easy, so I bet yeah. it, it might be the shortcut that changes everything. All right. We'll keep our eye on that. That's a fascinating yeah. line of inquiry. Let's, 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 let's try to remember that with our old brains. <laughs> not possible. <laughs> okay. Uh, so today we're going to go uh, take you back. Take, let's take us back in time at a, at a prehistory before the American IPA came along and changed everything in craft beer. Uh, the craft beer scene, and this was interesting when we were talking to uh, Kurt about it, because we live this. Um, yeah. You, you and I both arrived full-time in, in Portland. I had been coming part-time to Portland, but full-time in Portland in the fall of 1986. Right. Uh, and suddenly there were lots of these beers. I remember Full Sail Amber very vividly. I remember the Widmer's Haifa vividly as well. Yeah. So uh, this was a time when there were lots of different beer styles. There wasn't one sort of dominant beer style yet. Right. Uh, and so what we're going to talk about is that time and how Hefeweizen became a dominant beer style in the Northwest. Right. So why don't you take us back to exactly that time and, 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 and give us a little chronology of the, of the events. Yeah. Let's just stipulate at the start that no one knew what beers were going to sell well. Right. And as we, 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 in our last podcast, we talked to Kurt, Kurt and Rob, who thought alt beer might be a, a go. Oh, yeah. They were going to, they're going to do alt beer. And in your intro, you talked about how different breweries were trying different styles and they had no idea, right? Everybody, all they knew was light lager. And so you're just picking a style at random and hoping that, that you can sell it somehow. Yeah. A decade later, if you were starting a new brewery, it would be obvious. You right. Just make a really good IPA and, and, <laughs> and try to hang on to that and, you know, hope for the best yeah here they had no idea right uh and i i remember talking to carl okert i think is who the brewer was anyway one of those early guys who said you know a big challenge in selling the beer was you had to educate people about what it even was so you're educating and selling at the same time which was a real challenge uh so one and i just thought we we thought this would be a cool topic because right now it's actually kind of hard to find uh the style of beer that uh kurt and rob developed, which they called Hefeweizen, and right. which became known as Hefeweizen across the Northwest. <laughs> Those beers aren't actually very popular anymore, but for a decade from the release of, of Hefe uh, in 1986 until they went into bottles in 1996, they were by far the most popular beer style in the Northwest. Right. And people, you know, we always think of IPAs. Northwest is all about IPAs, but but there was a time when that wasn't true, and right. everybody had to sell uh, Hefeweizens. And we thought it would be kind of cool to describe that era and talk about how all that stuff happened. The first beer in this style. So uh, also worth noting that there is a beer already, (laughs) a beer that had 400 years of history called Hefeweizen that already existed made in Bavaria. And these beers were not like those beers. Uh, yeah. th- when, when Widmer released their beer, uh, they called it Hefe, they called it Weizen and then Hefeweizen because they were wheat beers. Right. And they were making a German, they were going to be a German brewery and it's like, well, you call a wheat beer Weizen. 
And they weren't, I don't think, really intending to suggest that it was going to have the banana and cloves that are typical, but they right. called it Weizen, right. and and there there was that problem. Okay, so so let's just yeah, let's just set the set the table then. So if you go to Germany, uh, a traditional Weizen, a traditional wheat beer, is very banana and clovey, is in right. my experience. Yeah. Uh, and what's the difference between a Weizen and a Hefe Weizen? Is that a is that a, a, a made up construct or? No, Weizen. So the word Weizen means wheat, mm-hmm. and then if you go to Germany, there's different variations on that. Right. Hefe is the cloudy version. Okay. There's Crystal Weizen, which is uh, crystal, so like clear. Right. Uh, Dunkel Weizen, dark mm-hmm. dark wheat. Weizenbach, which is a stronger wheat beer. Right. Um, there might be others that I'm forgetting, but anyway, like that. Uh, so. When Kurt and Rob released Weizen, as we talked about, the first thing they released was a clarified one. Right. They just called it Weizen. It was a wheat beer. Uh, and then later they released Hefeweizen, which was the cloudy one. It's like, well, we should call this Hefe because it's got all the Hefe in it. Right. It makes all kinds of sense. Yes. Meanwhile, um, Pyramid was kind of the other big brewery at the time that was making a, a, a beer, and they had one called Wheaton Ale. And uh, it's not actually very clear to me who got to market first with those beers. Right. But what is clear is that uh, Widmer Hefeweizen was wildly more popular than Wheat and Ale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it was really the one that everyone was copying. Yeah, and as we learned from Kurt last time, the the sort of genesis of their beer was, was the struggle of trying to sell this dark alt beer. Yeah. Uh, and so they wanted something different. Yeah, they were almost out of business with the alt beer. Right. <laughs> they were like weeks from being bankrupt. <laughs> so they got going. Just a little bit more history on, on Kurt and Rob. I, I have that really, when I did the book, I interviewed uh, Carl Okert, who was at Bridgeport, the founding brewer at Bridgeport, which right. was two blocks away, so that he, he got to look in on this. And uh, he told this really fascinating and wonderful story about the filter that we've just heard Kurt talk about last, <laughs> last time. I'll read you this quote, because I think it's super cool. I was going to bring a clip in, but um, I interviewed him when he was uh, the brewer at Deschutes, and we were in a pub, and it was kind of bad audio. So I'll just read it. He, he told me, the yeast they use is so terribly non-flocculent, it doesn't settle out well. I remember going over there one night, and they were filtering, and it was late. And you could see sections of beer moving through the pipe, and then it would clog up the filter, <laughs> and they would have to break it all down, put it back together again. And he made these kind of noises of breaking it down at that point. It just wasn't working. I don't know what the story is with their first Hefeweizen, but I suspect it was because it was completely unfilterable, this yeast <laughs> issue they had. They had this ancient plate frame filter. Pads were the worst thing to take yeast out because it binds almost instantly, and then you can't get any fluid through them anymore. They were just hating life with this thing. Uh, and then he said when when it, when it came, came to be uh, that they could sell Hefeweizen, he said, I'm sure that they were just like, yes! <laughs> and that's exactly what they were like. <laughs> So that that's how uh, necessity breeds invention. Yeah, and they were really really fortunate there. Um, the beer the beer was pretty popular. I mean, you and I are actually arriving on the scene. So we're we're now this yep. that was released in '86. I think we started drinking craft beer maybe before we were 21. Possibly that we had some sense of things before we were 21. I can neither confirm nor deny that. But, <laughs> but I remember Bridgeport being really popular in, in this, this same period, and uh, the yep. uh, McBrothers were creating quite a sensation. And it actually took Hefeweizen in a little while. It was really, I think, in the early 90s that it went that it started to become super ubiquitous and take over the world. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'm thinking about when... Uh, I consumed a fair amount of it, but it was probably right, right about the uh, 1990, 1991 yeah. period. It wasn't as as early as that. Back then, I was uh, full sale. Amber was a big, big one, and Bridgeport, I think, another one. Yeah, yeah. It was. I think uh, uh, Kurt kind of downplayed this, but um, in my memory, putting that beer in uh, the Heathman's offshoot pub called B. Mollick, yes, which was headed by Greg Higgins, the most famous chef in Oregon, uh-huh. uh, gave it a kind of status that no other beer could touch. And that was the, the it was a, for the first time we had an upscale beer that was designed specifically to be paired with food. Yes. And, and, you know, this, we're talking like uh, late 1980s here when this was 
really would have been seemed very strange to people that you would you would put something as plebeian as beer on a on a, a dinner table with the best food in the you know the city treat treat beer like you would treat wine right that, that would just have really confused people right and it brought all these people into craft beer that wouldn't have probably been into craft beer at the time because it it was this safe harbor for the first time and I remember do you remember it was uh, Hefeweizen was kind of considered and it was usually called this derisively the crossover beer. Yes. It was a like the gateway beer for it, people. Yeah, it was light. It wasn't very aggressive. So you could go from your industrial light lager to craft beer fairly smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the success of uh, that that beer, I think particularly among women, which it may be a really under noticed part of this whole thing, was one of the reasons Portland had massive beer saturation so early on. We talked to Kurt last uh, last time about how many barrels they were selling on draft, and it was a staggering amount of beer. Uh, they were selling uh, all over the city. Basically, right. you couldn't walk into a restaurant or pub without being able to find this beer. Yeah, and every other brewery was looking at that like we got to get a piece of that. Yeah, and by you know by by the early 1990s, basically every brewery in the Northwest, you know, with a few exceptions like. Uh, Hair of the dog did not have a Hefeweizen. You know, yeah. there were some breweries that were that were already going in a different direction. But if you just had a standard brew pub, you had a pale ale, you had a porter, you had uh, a Hefeweizen, and everybody did. Right. Yeah. And I'll, and and just to attest, I don't want to uh, play up the gender component too much, but my wife. But I would just say people who don't particularly uh, aren't particularly big beer drinkers. Uh, uh, she would used to drink Hefeweizen quite a bit, and still, it's one of the beers I'll buy for her if. If we're going to be drinking beer, I think I think that's a really critical point. And at the time, uh, in our sexist pre-Me Too uh, world, mm-hmm. we considered that a detriment to the beer. But I think it actually was an enormous asset that it brought women to beer. Yeah. And we saw recently that it was reported out that half the half the beer sold in Portland is drunk by women. And I don't think it's too much to say that. Getting women involved as early as we did here in Portland, thanks largely to this this beer that was attractive to them, right. set the stage for uh, you know de degenderizing beer. Yeah, I it was think, an, it was an important thing I that happened. Right. Another thing happened uh, contemporaneously with that, and maybe we can taste some beer here. Yeah, uh, let's let's get to it. it. Almost as soon as wheat beer was released, somebody I think it would probably. Pyramid gets credit, and we I think we have the beer that that they that they first did this with, yeah. put fruit in it, and right. that became almost as big a deal as just the straight wheat beers. Yeah, because um, it's an easy neutral palate to to lay fruit on top of. Right. We uh, looked for beer in this style, and there are almost none of them being made anymore, <laughs> which is fascinating. So I'll just take you a, a little uh, a little tangent, which is when I showed up at graduate school and. Uh, 1995, and right about that time, some friends of mine were starting uh, the Ithaca Beer Company in Ithaca, New York. Uh, their first, one of their first beers, and their first hit beer was Ithaca Beer Apricot Wheat, and I think they probably still make it. Wow. Uh, yeah. I think they may have um, been inspired by this first beer. We're gonna I try think here. they might well have. So Pyramid, apparently, I did, I kind of didn't realize this, still makes their uh, apricot ale, which is a, which is their regular. Uh, Hefeweizen, which they started calling their their wheat beer Hefeweizen in 1993, uh-huh. they, which they were bottling. Right. Um, they wanted to get in on that market, uh, and uh, they started putting uh, apricots in it. I think even before they released that in the bottle. So right. this is a really old beer. This is one of the older uh, Northwest beers that we're about to taste. And it's I have, of course, continuously brewed. Yes, I have had not had it in a long time. All right. So um, actually, do you want to? Sure, I'll do the the full audio we'll do in our little special uh, place here. Whoops, excuse me for that. Here we go. That's good. You're making a lot of noise, which is brings the reader right in the studio. Like how I dropped the key. Oh, you're gonna overflow it. No, no. Come on, I'm a pro here. That was nice. All right. <laughs> Kudos to you. Oh, we didn't do the uh, before when we were uh, last week when we were uh, about to open the the uh, Widmer Hefeweizens. Kurt turned it upside down and swirled it around to agitate the uh, oh, the, the so sediment, oh. and we we forgot to do that. Yeah. So um, that may not actually be that relevant in this beer, but anyway, we didn't do it. 
Yeah, that's too bad. But it does look like a Hefeweizen, this, these kinds of beers. Also, it's really important, I think, to acknowledge that uh, there was the, a hazy. Yeah, this is a weird look. Like you can imagine how weird this would have looked. I mean, it was so interesting when, right. like, two years ago, people were like, "Oh my God, we've never seen a beer like that." Yeah. Well, some of us have. Well, it was interesting because Kurt was saying that they were worried that people were going to think, "Yeah, you don't know how to make beer. Look at it. You can't even you can't even make it clear. Uh, so you must be doing something wrong." Oh, you got to smell that. <laughs> oh man! Describe it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hello. Uh, a massive blast of apricot. It's like dried apricot. Yeah, it's like opening a bag of dried apricots. Yeah. There is a little wheat underneath it, but holy moly, is that apricotty? Oh, my gosh. That is like apricot juice. It's like apricot juice. Mm. Um, it's, this is not, the Ithaca one is much more of a wheat beer with a slight uh, apricot flavor. This one is apricots. <laughs> and then there might be beer underneath, perhaps. This is, this to me, I would I would describe this as a naive beer uh, or a beer for naive drinkers where okay. you have extremely strong flavors that don't really relate to beer so much yeah. but they're um, if you were if you were just making a beverage that would you know has soda like characters uh, yeah. that would be attractive I mean to I people. guess what I would say is that palates become more tuned to subtlety mm-hmm. as you become more sophisticated and at the time People weren't that sophisticated in terms of their approach to, to beer. What was nice about the uh, the Widmer Hefe, which we also have poured out here, and we uh, we did it previously, is that it's a uh, it's a nice it, it 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 sort of has stood the test of time because it's a nice uh, subtle palate. It's nothing. There's nothing too overwhelming. It's a nice balanced beer. Yeah. Hefeweizen, just to continue this uh, narrative tale a little bit, was so popular that uh, in the mid-1990s, a guy named Jim Bernau, 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 probably Bernau, decided that he wanted to create a brewery that basically ripped off Widmer. That was was really the whole thing. (laughs) So everybody's drinking this Hefeweizen. And Widmer's only selling it on draft. Ah. And Jim Bernau sees this opportunity to crack into... Uh, this market. Right. And he actually, it was interesting. He had this idea. He was going to set up this series of uh, breweries that uh, across the country at like a national network. Wow. He was ambitious. Yeah. He was very ambitious. And he they were each going to do different things and they were each going to be regional, uh-huh. uh, which is actually quite forward thinking. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit like the, uh, the approach to craft beer that uh, AB and other big companies have taken. Yeah. It's interesting. You've asked the question, what if, if uh, you know, if, if Sarah Nevada sold under a different name right in uh, on the east when they sold in the Create, east coast yeah created a different a whole different brand for their brewery in the east coast yeah this was kind of that idea right so he hired uh, Carl Okert who we've already quoted once uh, uh, right. to come be his uh, brewmaster and he keeps popping up yeah <laughs> he does uh, and in the uh, in my interview for this book for the Widmer Way I uh, asked him about that and he told this interesting tale which I will I'll again quote him here it wasn't until later when Thomas Kemper did their Barry Weizen uh, that wheat beer started coming in. His history may be slight. I, I think that's kind of historically inaccurate, but um, uh, that was that was the moment when the fruit beer started becoming right. nuclear. Yeah. And I think that's what he's talking about. Um, and then I was working for Norwester Brewery, and Jim Bernot was looking and going, what's the most popular style of beer? Wheat beer. That's what we're going to make. So we made our own Hefeweizen, and we did quite well with it. And then, because Barry Weizen was big, we made a Raspberry Weizen, and that did quite well. And then he told me, in parentheses, it was awful beer, but it did quite well. Uh, so uh, then he continues, what happens in the brewing business is we're all follow the leader to a certain extent. Uh, we're herd followers in the beer business, and every once in a while, somebody ends up with the ball, and they run with it for a while, and they get to be the leaders. And then the pad passes, and away we go. So it was an interesting kind of look at how... Uh, popular the beer style was in this moment, this this uh, hazy moment. So, so he was basically just trying to create Widmer Hefeweizen, yeah, and, and get it. it and get it in the bottle because it was an opportunity right. uh, that he saw that was an opportunity. They had 
uh, a chance to get in the bottle before Widmer, although that was w- one of the pressures that got Widmer to go in the bottle in 1996. Yeah, and so it was probably good. It was probably good. Should we try this raspberry Weizen? Okay, so what's the other beer we got? <laughs> well, we got another one that was, re- it's really typical of, of the mid-19, early to mid-1990s. But it's thoroughly modern uh, in the well, sense that it's being sold right now. <laughs> that's right. That is right. Um, it's Alaskan's uh, raspberry wheat. Oh. Uh Okay. Ale brewed with raspberries. So we're going to give this a shot uh, and see what this is like. All right. Here uh, we go. We'll take it into the little recording studio here. Okay. Ah. I added the ah. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so... <laughs> now, this is interesting. It is not a Hefeweizen. Wow. No, there's no Hefe about it. No, it's a it's a, it's a, a crystal Weizen. Yeah. But it's very raspberry colored. It sure is. <laughs> what's, that, what's that bad boy smell like? Uh, yeah, as much as the apricot ale wow. smells like apricots, that smells like raspberries. And the, the, the smell is a really similar. It has a... I guess you said dried fruit. It, 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 to me, it, to me, the apricot smell just like dried apricots. Let me let me smell the raspberry. Oh boy! Yeah, like a raspberry concentrate. Huh? I made a homebrew that tasted like that. Uh, so okay, so here's my. You want to hear my story about raspberries and homebrew? Yeah. That's not a terrible beer, but it's just it just really tastes like old fashioned. Yeah, yeah. When you use raspberry, so I had raspberry extract. What you got from FH F. H. Steinbart? Uh, wait, I mail ordered from FH Steinbart. This is when I was in Ithaca, New York, in graduate school, and uh, I decided I was going to brew a raspberry porter because that's what you did, and uh, so I brewed this beer, and I was very proud of my beer. It was raspberry, and it was no one was brewing beer around then, so I brought it into my uh, my office at. Uh, uh, at Cornell and uh, gave it to my office mate <laughs> and he drank it and he said hmm that tastes just like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> and, and I you were was crushed devastated though now that that would be a huge uh, you know praise like uh, people are making things that are, maybe, are named peanut butter and maybe. jelly sandwich absolutely uh, and then the little my little sort of claim to fame I suppose is that uh, that uh, person who gave me that uh, that feedback um, dropped out of Cornell and then went on to do a public policy degree at Rand and became the the president of the American Enterprise Institute, oh. uh, which I think he's just stepping down. Arthur Brooks. He also writes for the New York Times. Oh my God, Arthur Brooks? Are you serious? I never knew that was Arthur Brooks. <laughs> he was my office mate, and he's the guy who called my beer a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Wow, he's kind of a big deal. He is. Kind he's of a on big deal. CNN and whatnot. Yeah, all that's the time. him. Yeah. That's wow. Him. Uh-huh. Uh, and I can't remember. He just. I think he's going to the Kennedy School or something like that. Huh. Uh, stepping down from the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, at the time, he was just a crazy person who had no taste in beer. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet he nailed that beer. Did he, kind did, of, he did. Know. He did. He 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 kind of woke me up to the fact that this raspberry extract should be used in very delicately in moderation, and I had failed to do so. Besides, I wasn't a very good brewer at the time, anyway. So yeah, we were both in that extract phase of brewing that that uh, Kurt described last time. Yeah. All right. Well, should we? Uh, we when when Kurt was in studio last time, we uh, were you going to do something before I go into that? Uh, well, I just wanted to say that uh, that you have this interesting quote. Um, there were there were critics. Oh yeah, of the style. That's right. Mostly outside the uh, Northwest. In the Northwest, it was you know an impregnable. Uh, you wouldn't ever speak ill of it. But yeah, and the problem was that they were they were calling it uh, Weizen and Hefeweizen, right? Uh, which is based on a German style, but the taste was not German, right? Uh, it was different. It was hoppy. It was American. It didn't have that banana clove uh, taste that you would normally associate it with it. And you have a quote here from Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster at uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn Brewing. Um, he, he, uh, and he spoke to the New York Times, and uh, and he argued that the the American Hefeweizens were uh, trading on the good name of an actual established style to sell something that's different. It's confusing and frustrating. Yeah, and he's always been a critic of that. There was there were other quotes that he was he was irritated about them too. Yeah, it is worth noting that he was making a, a beer called uh, Brooklyner Weiss. Uh, is that right? Yeah, which was um, you know his version of a Bavarian Weiss beer, right? A Bavarian Bavarian Weiss beer, and so he wasn't exactly an objective. But the nomenclature, I suppose, you could argue. Yeah, no, he's right. It, right? Yeah, so, he's right. It was yeah. it was. Uh, 
you know, we've described how it kind of ended up with this weird name that didn't, that, that was accurate, but right. uh, in suggested a different beer that it wasn't. Yeah, but but for good reason, as you mentioned. At the time, there wasn't anything like it. It was a wheat beer, so you called it a wheat beer. I forgot to, there was one other quote, and then we'll go to Kurt. Yes. Um, Gary Fish had this really cool uh, quote when he was getting started. Gary Fish is the founder of Deschutes Brewing. Thank you. Um, the popularity of Hefeweizen was so profound that his distributor, Admiral Admiral. Admiralty brew, uh, beverage. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a hard word, but I had challenged. I was challenged by it. Um, suggested uh, that he go a different direction, and here's the quote: "To just, this kind of, I think, illustrates how powerful uh, Hefe was in the in the marketplace at that point." He said, "We initially had three beers: Cascade Ale, Bachelor Bitter, and Blackview Porter. As we began to distribute, uh, Hefe was hot." Jim Kennedy of Admiralty Beverage said, we could duke it out in the lighter color beers or take dark beers and own the smaller pie. That was fundamental. They represented Wid- Widmer and sold Hefeweizen and Black Butte Porter as salt and pepper. And he, he talked about this. Like when they would go when they would go to accounts, they'd say, you got to have your salt, you got to have your pepper. And right. then that way they could kind of piggyback by not being Hefeweizen. Right. And, and of course, Blackview Porter became an It's really amazing to style. think about how these breweries uh, were so successful and grew on these terribly different styles. You know, Hefeweizen for Widmer, Porter uh, was the beer that made Deschutes. Uh, and then, you know, a decade later, you had to have an IPA or you were nothing. Yeah. Okay, now should we go to uh, our our yes. Kurt our Kurt quote when when he was in studio last week we asked him to talk a little bit about this period, and he did and so let's go to the tape and hear what he had to say about what it was like then. So uh, talk a little bit about on deep background when you were brewing your homebrew Weizen how did you construct that recipe where did that what what were you what did that look like? Well, I didn't have any capability to filter at home. And so, but I wasn't opposed to letting beer kind of naturally settle out over time. I didn't have to rush things, you know. But uh, it it was up, uh, basically my first experience brewing with wheat, you know. And, and uh, so the beer was naturally cloudier anyhow with all the glutens there. So, uh, um, but the yeast that we were using um, until the very end was was not the best yeast. I mean, I, I didn't right. realize how, how the deck was stacked against us making decent beer with, you know, this. I'm not kidding you. Somebody plated it out and said it, it's got 17% bacteria or something like that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, we did the best that we could with, with what we had at that, at that point. So when you started making it commercially, mm-hmm. you were using a different yeast strain. You were using the Uruga yeast strain. Correct. Uh, how does that yeast affect the cloudiness of the beer? What is What role does that there's, play? There's... Um, in the world of yeast, brewer's yeast, there's there's basically two very rough parameters. One is, is powdery, uh-huh. and, and one is flocculent. And fortunately for us, <laughs> <laughs> we picked the powdery. Uh-huh. Uh, and and uh, the the good news for that is that uh, it stays in solution longer, and yeah. so the beer matures faster. Bad news is it stays in beer longer <laughs> and, and fights like hell not to come out. And, and so... Uh, that's the one. That's what we ended up with, you know. Right. So it, what the yeast that that to make Weizen beer, it was the worst yeast that we could possibly have selected. But to make Hefeweizen, it was the best yeast that we could possibly have selected. <laughs> and that was uh, we were aware. I, I won't mention any names, but we were aware of, the, of people that that uh, were trying to replicate what we were doing. And and uh, I think most of them never did catch on to the fact that it was the yeast that made so much difference in far as far as the appearance goes. Uh-huh. Right. Um, they were they were taking the beer apart as, to the extent that they could, you know. And but they were it's like, well, God, they're using this and this and this, you know. And, and uh, we actually had T-shirts made with our ingredients on the back, you know. I mean, and so, <laughs> but uh, they never really, most of them never figured out that it was the yeast that made. And and we realized that. Um, so if you make make our beer with our yeast, which you could do, I mean, you could buy a bottle of this and then, and the, you know, culture right. the yeast right out of there, you know. Right. So then how do you sell it? Do you say uh, it's as good as Widmer? It's it's the same as Widmer? I mean, right. what, what is your selling slogan at that point? <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we were just like, this might work for to our advantage, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that leads us to the next kind of line of inquiry, which is that a lot of people did want to make a Hefeweizen. Mm-hmm. It was... Um, uh, uh, it became a wildly popular beer mm-hmm. after you launched it. So, talk about the uh, you launched it in uh, 1986. Mm-hmm. 
what was the when did it supplant the regular Weizen and how fast did it grow? What what did its what did its like yeah, yeah talk my, about that. my recollection is is that it, it it exceeded Weizen sales after like twelve months. Okay. And you know, we were very hesitant to let go of something that was, had been working so well, but but we we quickly realized we couldn't do both. Yeah. We just mm-hmm. didn't have the capacity to do both. And the Hefeweizen was a hell of a lot easier, so we right. didn't have to filter it with a piece <laughs> of a chunk machine. Yeah. So uh, that that was, yeah, it was an early, early decision that we had to make, and unfortunately we, we went the right direction. When did you see, in in Portland, it became a phenomenon, uh, a, a really, I mean, it, it's hard to describe to people how what a big deal it was. When did that start to happen? 86, 87. Okay. You know, it was... It was uh, um, we, at that point, we could have as many as three or four handles at a, at a given tavern, you know. Right. That might be the exclusive craft beer. Right. And uh, we had to start giving up, like, we were the first brewery in the U.S. to do year-round seasonals. Okay. German model. And uh, we had to st- slowly start giving up all these other beers and focus exclusively on the Hefeweizen because that was what the biggest demand was. So Yeah. Uh, what role did B. Moloch play in the the beer's popularity? You know, um, by then it was all the beer was already rolling. Okay. The role that it played was um, we were out of capacity at our Lovejoy location, uh-huh. and so basically this was to to augment our capacity. It wasn't going to double it, but it was going to be an important factor. And it turned out we, we woefully undersized it, and it was you know it you know it was it it worked it functioned really well, but it didn't give us the, the volume that we really needed. So then we, we immediately. Started looking for a bigger home and bigger equipment. Right, you built you built something like four breweries in a, your first decade or something. Yeah, you, you had a <laughs> four, four or five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at some point uh, in the early 1990s, um, basically every brewery seemed to be making Hefeweizen, some mm-hmm. their version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about what it was like to have this different problem. Now, now you've successfully created this really popular beer but now everybody's making it and trying to you know get in on that so what was what was that period of competition like um it was flattering of course Uh but but uh we um you know everybody that was making one was selling against us different different selling tools you know trashing our management trashing our (laughs) ownership structure trashing you know the the knothead brothers you know don't know what they're doing and uh but um I, I think that uh, there were a couple that were um, not very good, mm. um, like bacterial microbiological contamination. Mm-hmm. We, we worried about that a lot because people that did, hadn't seen our beer before would look at it and, and think there might be something wrong with it. And then if they got one of these for the first time, right? It's like, oh my God, you know, that's all we need is for them to associate that with us somehow, you know. But uh, fortunately, that that the marketplace pretty quickly sorted out when beer was bad and and those guys didn't last very long you know so and they were honestly they were people that were more in it for the money than, than the passion about for brewing yeah so we didn't we weren't too sad to see them go <laughs> <laughs> but there were other breweries like pyramid was a major competitor yeah, that had a hefeweizen yeah. and they they got theirs in the bottle i think in they the did. early 90s something yeah. like that yeah and so now they're available in grocery stores yes and you're still only selling draft beer we we were aware that um, drunk driving laws were, were tightening up. Yeah, and uh, so people are taking their beer home more, less on premise consumption, um, and uh, that at that point, say eighty percent of the uh, beer sales were in package of some form, cans, bottles, and we were only operating in twenty percent of the total beer market. You know, and so we realized that in the long run, we better be able to to operate in the in the whole thing. You know, to to keep it a level playing field. So. Um, and then, you know, they were in a, kind of an inspiration. It's like, damn, these guys are in bottles and, and we're not, you know, I mean, uh, it's, at what point does it tip the scales, you know, too much in their favor? So, right. um, but I'd say the bigger factor was, was just seeing where market trends were going. And, and I just want to let people know what, uh, what a, what a remarkable, um, success this beer was. So at one point you told me for the book that, uh, the last year that you were selling all draft beer, mm-hmm. Uh, tell me that story. You were tell me the the imp- the, the the size of your brewery. We, we were the, well. That doesn't give anybody any perspective. But we were the largest draft only brewery uh, in the in the western. I guess in the world. Yeah. It was uh, the the Guinness brewery in in uh, Kent. 
that right? I think you told me Dun Dundalk, maybe. Could be. Um, I don't know. It's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so they, were they, they, they were the largest. We were the second, or, or it was, it was something like that. You know, I mean, but we were right there with them. You know, and, and uh, but uh, anyhow, exciting times. And you were selling, I think, sixty-eight thousand barrels of beer. Something uh, like, yeah. Which uh, on draft, which is right. just a staggering number, even by today's standards, when craft beer is, you know, ten times as big. There were there were a lot of brewers that were coming online that that came down. And just to see, because they couldn't believe it, you know. And, yeah. and when they saw what we were using for kegging equipment, <laughs> they, still couldn't, they still couldn't see it. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see pictures of that? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. The, the channel, channel iron and, and uh, the, the homemade little racker that my dad, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a video of that. Um, yeah, which, there is. Yeah, with uh, Angel Marquez yeah. uh, hopping around. Right. Very young Angel Marquez. Very young. Very young. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, so uh, there you heard from the horse's mouth, and it was uh, really great to have Kurt in studio. Um, and yeah, so I guess I'll just, I'll just say that yeah. you know you see Hefa still; they're still pushing Hefa a lot. It's, oh, and it's still wildly that beer has survived when the trend has not. Yeah. Uh, uh, when I actually I, I picked up the Hefa Weizen that we tasted last week at the grocery store, and there were three outfacing uh, six packs of Hefa Weizen at the grocery store. Right. It's, so uh, is, it, is it still their number one seller? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, and so when you see it, it's interesting. You know, you can take it for granted, but it really represents a huge part of the legacy of craft beer in Oregon. It it really does, and and because it's kind of evaporated, people don't remember that hidden history. But it was really an important part of uh, our history, and I think had some really positive uh, consequences that continue to. Uh, uh, benefit us today so yeah it, and one it, of the things i would say directly is that it got craft beer drinkers accepting a hazy uh profile absolutely and and we have had hazy beers ever since yeah and, we, so, and they we've had hazy kolsch's and hazy uh pilsners and hazy everything is hazy here and yeah. it's because we 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 embrace the haze way early yeah yeah okay all right. So now we need to move on to our next segment. Yeah. Uh, which uh, we're going to try and be a little more regular about, but uh, we're going to do Sherpa. We're going to do Sherpa. And I wrote something down here, and then I remembered a beer that I even want to do before this one, which we'll do this one later. Okay. So we're, we're bumping the current Sherpa for an even better Sherpa. Even better Sherpa. All right, Sherpa, tell us. Tell us first, remind us what the Sherpa is, and then. Uh, the Sherpa time. is a, uh, a beer that we, one of us has tried that really knocked our socks off that we would like to shine a light on and bring some attention to it. And the term Sherpa represents? The uh, people who uh, shepherd uh, people up a mountain. Right. So they're the guys who actually so we're, get the neophytes up the mountain. Yeah, the, so the, the actual guide, talent. guide you up the mountain of craft beer. <laughs> That's so, right. All right. So what's this week's Sherpa? Uh, this week's Sherpa, I'm going to go with uh, a brewery in in Olympia, Washington, called Matchless, uh, which I haven't uh, experienced too much, but somebody left me a six-pack of beer that was absolutely exceptional. It was called Dark Lager. Wow. But it was interesting. So it wasn't just a straight Schwarz beer. It had a tiny little bit of smoked malt in there. Okay. And it tasted totally authentic. I don't think this in any way... I think if you if somebody were making something like this in Franconia, it would be considered like totally legit. Nobody would bat an eye at it but it's not actually a style right it's a it's a it's a schwarz beer with some smoked malt in it right and it just it had all the quality that i love in a schwarz beer it was light um but characterful and it was crisp and dry in the way that lagers are but with the schwarz beer you get a little bit of chocolate you get a little bit of roast and then this had this little tiny bit of smoke um which uh as you continued to drink it would drop out more and more and more as your palate got used to it. Right. Uh, but it really added a character of uh, distinctiveness that I totally I totally fell for. And right. I don't think it's one of their regular beers, but I uh, hope that they are listeners and that it will make... It <laughs> more will be, of it. <laughs> yes, and send it to me. It's okay, so good. the name of the brewery is again? Matchless. Matchless. And the, the, the name of the beer? Dark Lager. Dark Lager. Excellent. Okay, so that's the Sherpa for this week. Yep. Uh, we have mailbag. All right. Nat asks, and Patrick... Uh, ID'd who the, who this Nat was. It's a Nat West, the uh, cider maker here in Portland from Reverend Nats. Um, he asked the question, he sent me this, and this one was uh, just out of the blue, so thanks, Nat. 
Uh, is there a horse historical trend happening at Anheuser-Busch? I'm thinking of the Goose Porter, which they've just released this uh, uh, revival of an 1840 recipe. Right. And Budweiser and the Budweiser Reserve Collection. Right. Yeah, and as you as you mentioned here, they had that Freedom Reserve Red. It's, I'm glad you gave them the name because I couldn't remember. I know I had to Freedom look it up. Reserve Red Lager, which was something that was supposed to do with like some recipe they found in George Washington's diary or which something was like that. Total crap. Had nothing to do with <laughs> George Washington. So I, 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 you know, I don't know the answer. I, it seems perhaps that the the George Washington beer seemed like a real um, attempt to sort of. Um, highlight the fact, and which is true, that this is this is uh, a, a very uh, historic brewery in, in in the United States. You know that they what they brew now maybe not trendy, not craft beer, but this is a brewery that's been around a long time brewing beer. That's a part of uh, you know American brewing history, I suppose. So maybe it's a rather than just say uh, inaccurately that we you know we we brew craft beer. Although I got to be careful because nomenclature is tricky there but yeah. uh but just uh they're not doing what the other people are doing but what we're doing is legit yeah and i wish because that beer was such crap and <laughs> had nothing to do with their actual archives and i'm sure they have wonderful archives uh i would love i would love them to do that more i my my answer to this is i've i've been in contact with the guy uh, and we actually interviewed them here on the podcast uh, the brewer at Goose Island, his name is Mike Siegel. Right. And we interviewed Mike and Ron at an earlier podcast when they did the first one of these revival beers. Right. Uh, I think it's Mike. I think really Mike is allowed to do these things. And he's partnered with this historian, Ron Pattinson, an yeah. English historian. And it's just a passion project for him. And Anheuser-Busch has the money to let him go crazy. And right. uh, this this beer that they're doing, this porter, cost I can't even think how much money it costs. <laughs> and there's no way they're getting their money back on yeah. that. So yeah. it's... Um, I don't think they're really related, uh, those trends. I think it's mostly just if Mike wasn't working for Goose Island, I can't imagine that Goose Island would be doing this. Yeah, yeah. Well, credit to uh, to Anheuser-Busch to, for letting those kinds of passion projects happen. Yeah, they're getting a lot of crap because they're Anheuser-Busch, like this beer is somehow tainted. And I just have to say, uh, this this is um, maybe we'll talk about this beer at some point. Um, it's a beer that will recreate more accurately a London Porter from 1840 than anything that I've I've heard of in my lifetime right. here. Yeah. And uh, I would. I'm, we're gonna. We're, we're, uh, I'm getting some bottles, Excellent. so we can taste that and right. see. There's a pot in itself. Yeah. Exactly. All right. We we're out of time, so we gotta we gotta take off. All right. Seed uh, the studio to the next next group. So, a uh, few words going out. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. Uh, that helps listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions and comments. Uh, you can. The best way to do it is to email Jeff uh, at. Uh, sorry, let me go get email Jeff, comma, at uh, Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or visit us on social media. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at, at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. All right. So uh, I'll pick up the raspberry. All right. I'll go for the, uh, the apricot. apricot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>